Welcome to Revenge the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 2,000. This week's movies are 1959's The Mummy and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, starring Tom Atkins from director Tommy Lee Wallace and producer, composer, and I believe writer or co-writer John Carpenter. Yeah. I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined here by... Jim, hello, 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 everybody, hello, Patrick, hello. Hello, Jim, happy Halloween. This is our last episode before Halloween, and of course, we have a Halloween film. One of the most Halloween films. Wait, which one? The Mummy, of course. Um, (laughs) No, I, I mean, like, Halloween 3 just has so much... Halloween atmosphere feel to it. I just, you know, I really appreciate it. Even even more so than the Halloween movies that that actually have Michael Myers in them. I don't know what it is. It just really puts me in that Halloween spirit. Yeah, I agree with that. Have you seen this mummy before? Have you seen any of the Hammer British no, horror movies no, before? No, no. I I never saw this mummy before. I was pleasantly surprised. Have you seen my mummy? <laughs> Okay, okay. Little Doctor Who reference there. Was it? Um, I just I just did yeah. a British accent mummy <laughs> joke. I didn't know that's a Doctor Who thing. Okay. You know I I've seen like one episode of Doctor Who. What the fuck do I know? <laughs> Maybe it was that one episode. I will say I really enjoyed this this mummy, but I still think I like the uh, 1999 Mummy a little more, the one that you and I did a commentary track. Yeah, I was go- I was going to mention that this is the first Mummy movie that we've featured on the podcast, but it's not the first time you and I can be heard talking about Mummy movies because we did a commentary track on the Brendan Fraser or Fraser, <laughs> which you can hear on our Patreon. And that one, I I just you had talked about that movie a lot. I knew you were a big fan of it. I enjoyed that movie a lot too. I've seen all of the Universal Mummy movies from, you know, the 30s and 40s. I've seen, I think, only the, I think there's only three Hammer Mummy movies. I think I've seen the first two, which are both coming up this season, obviously. I mean, this one's right here. I think the second one's coming up later. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the Mummy and, and maybe the Mummy as a movie monster because, you know, it's... Uh, it's got some weaknesses. I mean, straight, <laughs> there's a positive, there's a negative to everything, right? But yeah, the mummy is a movie monster. Not the most compelling. And then there's also the whole, like... And, and this film doesn't shy away from it. I actually like that the movie kind of brings up the idea of British exploitation of Egypt, I guess, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. through archaeology and everything. But there is the whole, like, cultural thing, like, the mummy is, is, is a monster. It's just kind of like, eh, you know. You couldn't create this as a new monster, a new creation nowadays. No, and I mean, they tried and failed uh, spectacularly with their reboot of the old, the, the what was it, the Universal Cinematic Universe? Oh, um, uh, the, yes, the Dark Universe. Here's the weird thing about all of that. So when the mummy was originally created as a monster back in, I guess, like the 30s, right? Well, that's when the movie first came out. But there, were, there, there was probably like 
stories going around really mm-hmm. you know like i i don't know in literature or just spoken going back to like when those those tombs first started being opened by british archaeologists which probably goes back to what the 1890s or so give or take uh and then uh, you have like and then you have like the curses like the the stories of like when people people died you know a, a few months or whatever after they opened one of these supposedly cursed tombs and in actuality they died because yeah. they were exposed to diseases to bacteria that had been just locked in there for thousands of years yeah for 4000 years yeah but they didn't know what was up so it's like th- that those things go back to yeah i mean they those those kinds of stories at least predate the the Boris Karloff movie, right? Because wasn't a King Tut found in like the twenties or something, and then yeah, I believe it was the early nineteen twenties. Yeah, and he wasn't obviously the first one found, but I know that I know that was one where a number of the archaeologists died not long after, I believe. By the nineteen thirties, Egyptomania is already has already kind of come and gone. Egyptomania was around from the late eighteen hundreds to the early to mid nineteen twenties before the Great Depression. So by the time that Universal comes out with like a monster movie where the monster's a mummy in the 30s, it's already kind of like an antiquated monster. Like people are like, oh, it's a mummy. That's neat. You know, that's that thing people were crazy about a decade ago. Okay. (laughs) You know, and then when you come out with it in the 50s, it just seems like you're like, oh, it's a mummy. You know, the only way that they make this movie interesting is that they set it in the late 1800s, right? Even continuing in the vein with, like, other mummy movies, the one from 99 was, like, a period piece, but it was full of, like, action and adventure, and it was exciting. The Tom Cruise one was absolutely awful. I I was dragged to see it, and they tried to make it exciting by changing the location from Egypt to, like, the Middle East, (laughs) which is where the mummy came from. So they had to, like, fight the Taliban and whatever to get in to get this mummy. Yes. Yeah, so, so wait a second. So isn't that? I mean, we talk about the Tom Cruise mummy as like, let's get away from Egypt. the The third, the third Brendan Fraser movie is like, let's get away from Egypt. Let's get away from Rachel Vice because we can't afford her anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have you have the the mummy tomb of the Dragon Emperor to blame, really. Yeah, but I mean, I'll I'll I'll, I'll let that one slide because they had mummies in in china whereas you know like mummies in in the middle east in like afghanistan iraq doesn't all it take to have a mummy is like uh some ancient dude falls into a bog or something I mean, don't you have <laughs> don't you have like mummies preserved in like mexico yeah, so, well you sort of yeah i mean what it yeah takes, you're the I mean, archaeology guy you know this stuff better than me but listen my, yeah, my well, I mean, pe- mummy knowledge is there's bog mummies swamp mummies whatever you want to call them you're more of a daddy guy. I get it. Um, what? Oh, I, I, see, I see what you're doing. I don't like it, but I see what you're doing. <laughs> you have people making themselves into mummies today, like Buddhist monks, and what they're doing is they starve themselves and have a little bit of water until they eventually die. They kind of dry out their insides. Um, well, and then you have Ted Williams. Yeah. Ted Williams. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess this is more of an Austin Powers than a mummy thing, but he, he froze himself, or rather his son froze him, but then I think something happened and his head was frozen separately than his body, or maybe his head came off at some point. I know there's a lot of <laughs> Ted Williams missing head jokes out there. I, I don't remember the exact extent of them, but... How unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, because it's, you know how, like, Disney supposedly froze himself, Ted Williams, same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of people did that, right? At the at the turn of the... Uh... 
at the beginning of the new millennium. You know, they're like, oh my god, this is the new craze, cryogenically frozen. It's like the new mummies. It's like those guys that end up on the Enterprise D in Star Trek, and that one Star Trek: The Next Generation. Oh yeah, episode. what was that one the called? Guy's yeah, like, I gotta was... check my stocks. I should yeah. I should be worth millions by now. And then Picard's like, Hang on, dude, we don't have money anymore. What the and fuck like, are what? you on about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then there's like that one cool country musician guy, and he's just hanging out. He's, he's oh yeah, yeah, he's a big Atlanta Braves fan. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, do you want to get us started on? The 1959 Mummy. So, The Mummy starring in it, I think. Definitely Christopher Lee as The Mummy. Yeah. And uh, what's his name? Mr. Mr. Star Wars. <laughs> yes, Mr. Mr. Grand Moff Tarkin. <laughs> yeah. Peter Cushing. <laughs> yeah, Peter Cushing. He will always be remembered as being in Star Wars. Which and, is uh, kind of, I mean, good for him, I guess, to a certain extent. But it's also kind of disappointing especially if you're a horror fan and i know a lot of horror fans yeah will still uh, yeah, end up I mean, loving he, he's a he's a star he's wars a solid actor oh he's 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 literally the best dr frankenstein that's ever been like he's awesome he's done like he's been sherlock holmes which i know everyone in in his mother has been sherlock holmes at one point or another i mean that's just like one of the most widely <laughs> cast roles ever but uh, yeah, and then he's he's in like all these classic British Hammer horror movies. He's um, he's Van Helsing in the in the Dracula series where Christopher Lee plays Dracula. He's very good in those too. It's kind of like I mean, it's a to a lesser extent, it's a bit out like Alec Guinness. Like there there are entire generations of people who are like, oh Alec Guinness, yeah, it's Obi Wan. But it's like no, I mean yes, you're right, but dude is like one of the most accomplished actors in the history of the world like (laughs) can we not just remember him as obi-wan i mean peter isn't isn't (laughs) the level of actor let's remember when he put when he put shoe polish on his face how can we have to remember when he put shoe polish on his face in lawrence arabia Oh, I thought yeah. you were just talking in his personal life. Uh, oh, yeah. When he went to, when, when he went to a party <laughs> I'm not with talking Justin about Trudeau. Mr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> the scene is set. It's 1895. There's a bunch of archaeologists trying to dig open a tomb. And by a bunch of archaeologists, I mean a bunch of hired poor people from <laughs> Egypt are digging a tomb. And a bunch of white people are standing around. Whatever, Whatever the Egyptian equivalent of the... Sherpa guide on the Himalayan um, <laughs> mountain climbing things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there's a term for it. There's three archaeologists. There's John Banning, who's played by Cushing. There's his father, Stephen, and his uncle, Joseph Wemple. Fantastic name. I mean, why is this like a family business? They're like all academics, right? Like, Yeah, so I guess that they're all, you know, archaeologists. They've decided to find this long lost tomb. And speaking of the tomb, they're looking for the tomb of Princess Ananka, which sounds like a fake Egyptian name, if I ever heard one. Well, at least like, well, <laughs> listen, I don't, I don't, I don't know the last time I translated hieroglyphics. Okay, this is Egyptian enough sounding. Okay, yeah, okay, you're right. Okay, okay, okay. yeah, I mean, the, the new mummy, they call her Anaxonamun. Ananka. I think that's the name of the princess in the 1932 mummy. Because I, I, I feel like I've heard that name. In more than one movie, but I've seen a number of mummy movies. So, for instance, the mummy we have here is Karis. Yes. And that is the name of the mummy, not in the original 1932 mummy, because that is Imhotep, just as it is in the 99, but 
Karis is the name of the mummy in all the sequels to the 1932 movie because they're not technically sequels. I mean, it's it's complete. It's it's the mummy returns or whatever or whatever they're even called. The mummy's hand, the mummy's purse, <laughs> and it's just not the same mummy. I don't know why that was. Could be that Ananka comes from one of those movies too because this seems to be taking inspiration from the 40s, the the mummy sequels just as much as it takes from the original mummy. But yeah, Ananka, I've definitely come across that name before. Well, Princess Ananka, she's the high priestess of the god Karnak. Which is that? Is that a real thing? I believe, well, Karnak's a place. I don't know if there's a god Karnak. Well, and and I guess I shouldn't be asking if an Egyptian god is a real thing. We're not trying to invoke any kind of paganism here but like you know what i mean like i well we'll invoke some paganism in the next movie that's for sure that's true of the egyptian gods we've all heard of we've got osiris got ra Mm -hmm. osiris is the falcon right uh i believe so there's Uh, isis anubis is the dog yeah isis isis that's right yes uh which one's isis the god of hijacking trucks and crashing into <laughs> yeah, things. The, uh, <laughs> the god of attacking christmas market in berlin <laughs> yeah there you go um, um yeah An- anubis is like the greyhound yeah and ra, ra is just the sun god I, yeah he, he's a falcon i believe oh is he i thought he i thought he was just the sun uh, i didn't no. i didn't know he had a he had an animal i mean i don't know i don't know this shit Okay, listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know this shit, and I just saw the 1959 British mummy movie. It's not like I learned much from this movie. I mean, it's, it's a fine movie, but <laughs> no. it's not exactly a documentary. Well, speaking of things we learn, so we learn that John Banning, Peter Cushing, has a broken leg. So he's not out digging or watching people dig like his relatives are. How bad is his leg break, by the way? Because he's still limping three years later. Well, he never got it set properly. That's what they say. 19th century medicine. Okay. All right. But at the very beginning, one of his relatives finds like a scarab seal on the ground, which means that they're close to the tomb. So he takes it over to John and he says, look, we're so close. And John goes, let me come. He goes, no, you can't, but we'll we'll get there in, in a couple days. Don't worry. After a couple days of digging, they finally find the entrance to the tomb. And just as they're about to break it open a man steps out i forget his name do you remember his name uh well he has a couple names because Mehmet he Bay, eventually yeah yeah because he eventually goes by a different name when he illegally emigrates to britain <laughs> this is a man in uh, in brown face i assume yeah his name is george pastel that's his okay that's he's his oh he's from cyprus he ends up being a bad guy but he's sort of like uh Who's the character in the 99 Mummy? The guy that kind of looks like... Benny. Um, no, not Penny. Um, <laughs> the guy that looks like... Um, the museum guy with a fez on. No, not him either. No. Oh, it's, oh, it's oh the, the really cool guy. Yeah. The really cool guy. The yeah. Guy, yeah. But yeah. Oh, no, it's Ardeth Bay. It's still Bay. So there's like a, a name similarity. And this this is, this is a, I guess, sort of a similar character, but it's just the bad version of that. He's the protector of this sacred mummy tomb thing which is which is what he is in in the 99 film when he's a good guy but he's just Mm -hmm. a little bit different so Mehmet Bey walks up to everybody and says hey look you have to stop digging here you cannot break the seal on that tomb if you break the seal on that tomb it'll lead to certain death they go ah like to hell with you I don't care 
So they head on into the tomb. They find the sarcophagus of Ananka. And just as I think the father leaves to tell his son, he says, hey, we, like, we found the tomb. After he leaves, uh, the uncle gets attacked by something after he picks up a scroll off the wall. And they hear him scream. I thought it's the other way around. The father gets attacked. Oh, is it the father that gets yeah, attacked? Yeah, because he's the one who's catatonic. Oh, you're right. You're right. Later. It is. It is the father. My apologies. And he hears a scream and he runs back into the tomb. And the father's kind of sprawled out across the sarcophagus. And he's mumbling in gibberish. And he's, he's, he's essentially catatonic is how they describe it. This is a little similar to the 1932 film. Again, the first person who encounters the living mummy or the born-again mummy, whatever you want to call it, when... when um, Boris Karloff gets out of the sarcophagus. That guy just loses his mind. He doesn't get the mummy doesn't kill him or anything. He just like screams and then laughs for like two minutes straight as the mummy very slowly walks away. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. I love that scene so much. So this is a little, this is sort of the same same idea. It's just not quite as funny because it's not as 1930s. They decide to send the father away back to England uh, for some medical attention. But before they leave Egypt, both John and the uncle, they decide to blow up the entrance to the tomb so nobody else can get into it. Who are these guys? Isis? Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. blowing up ancient <laughs> artifacts. Mehmet Bey is off to the side with this scroll of life that the father had picked up off the wall in the tomb. And he is speaking to the god uh, Christ. What's the god's name again? Oh god. Yeah, I honestly it was one Karnak. Had... Karnak. Yeah, if it's if it's an Egyptian god, it's one I'm not familiar with. So he's speaking to Karnak and he says, you know, I will I will avenge you, I will hunt down these people. I will use your will to take vengeance on the people who dare to look upon the face of your handmaiden. A a little hokey, but I'll give it to him. Three years later, we're now in England. And we hear, actually, I think first we run into a couple of drunks, right? Yeah, yeah, we got our obligatory <laughs> comic drunks. relief scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, it'd be more fitting if they were Scottish, but no, nah, just <laughs> kidding. They, everyone in Britain drinks. <laughs> I feel like the Hammer movies do this a lot, where it's just, it feels very Shakespearean. And it's unfortunate. And I don't mean, I, I don't mean the Shakespearean in a good way. I mean, like, if you <laughs> yeah. read, like, a Shakespeare tragedy, you've got, like, all these, like, really, really, really great scenes, and then, oh, here's the scene with the porter in Macbeth, where it's just, it, it was actually a pretty good scene, a pretty funny scene, but it's but it's cut out of every single stage version of Macbeth, because the, the play just stops to have, like, a comedy scene, and that's what these guys kind of feel like. They serve only one plot point, and then... They serve the most important plot point. They fuck everything up. Well, do they? They fuck one thing up. Well, they drop the mummy into the swamp. Into a bog, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They essentially loosen the mummy. I feel like that's probably a big a big deal. So after we get introduced to these, to these drunks who have been hired to move Mehmet Bey's stuff to a rented house, who is now going under the, the alias of Mehmet Atkill... We see John interacting with his father, who has come out of his catatonic state. He's, he, he says to John, he goes, you know, what attacked me was a mummy. I picked up the scroll of life, I read from it, and I was attacked by the mummy Karis. 
who I brought back to life, the, the high priest of Karnak. And John doesn't really believe him. He just kind of shoots well, yeah, his father I mean, off. He's yeah, like, yeah, why, well, why you're a crazy you? old man, you, you guy who's been in a catatonic coma sort of state for the last three yeah, years. Yeah, you haven't, you haven't spoken for the last three, three years or so, and then you're just like, oh, Christopher Lee attacked me. It's like, oh, oh. If if Christopher Lee attacked you, there was probably very good reason. Reason he you were probably a Nazi spy or something, and he just had to take, <laughs> take care <laughs> yeah, of this. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so while that's going on, these drunk guys hop into their carriage, and again, they're like pissed drunk. They hop into the into the carriage loaded with Mehmet Bay's stuff. Well, we say we say pissed drunk. This is. Um... This is legal driving um, in, in Britain, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to have a mandatory five or six drinks before you get behind the wheel, or or behind the horse, I guess, right? Well, there's actually a great line speaking of that where they come out and one of the guys goes, "A uh, horse, they're a man's best friend," and the guy goes, "No, that's a dog," oh, yeah. and he's like, "No, this is a horse. We're not that." Yeah, dog. yeah. That that was actually <laughs> kind of funny. I enjoyed that. So these drunks, they're cruising along down down a road. They hit like a bump before a bridge. Well, specifically, they're going really fast because there's a guy in the asylum, like knocking on the window and shouting yeah. out at them. So they're like yeah. afraid of him. And yeah. it was really confusing for a second because we we eventually get the mummy attacks in the asylum, and and you know the mummy wrecks his shit. But I almost thought like you see that, and you're you're almost thinking like, oh oh my god, is the mummy in there? Is the mummy doing something that we because we we still haven't seen the mummy doing shit even though he's yeah. probably done shit and you're right and, and those two fellows are scared so this box <laughs> like falls off the back of their carriage and thunks into a swamp and it's just swallowed whole <laughs> yep it's disgusting before we proceed i just want to say one of the highlights of this movie for me was just the sets uh, i love the bog set yeah it's awesome i yes. mean it's 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 obviously a set but it's great the tomb, the mummy tomb set is is fantastic. It is, yeah. And even the house interiors, which Mehmet Bey's house, I like. His that. his house is insane. Um, Peter Cushing's house, like, yeah. Archaeologists must get really well paid, and I, and I guess this is like the the golden age of archaeology too. So maybe yeah, they were is, really is, really well paid back then. I know, this yeah. was taking place in like eighteen ninety eight at this point because this is a few years after the original events. Well, the thing I liked about this is, like, in Mehmet Bey's house, which we'll get there eventually, but uh, he has a big kind of statue of Karnak <laughs> yeah. uh, in a room. And I'm like, wow. Like, this looks like this Anubis awesome. to me, but okay. Exa- well, exactly, yeah. Like a fatter Anubis. <laughs> like a fatter, lazier Anubis. He's just big boned. People probably had that in their house in Britain in the late 1800s, something like that. You know what I mean? When when Egyptomania oh like like height. non-Egyptian like no no one that like worshipped that but like just a a person whose like friend was an archaeologist and he just like took that from a temple and was like yeah. here do you want this like that kind of thing <laughs> yeah it's, it's possible and you know and I would have said yes if I was offered that I would have said absolutely Stephen has been moved downstairs into like a different room. <laughs> of of the asylum because he's too volatile he was breaking out all the windows so they have to put yeah. him in like a secured room he still has a window it's just like well above his head yeah and has has like metal grate over it or something 
the next day, the drunks and the constable get together, and they're like, yeah, we were going too fast, and we lost something off the back of our carriage. And the and Mehmet Bey walks up and says, oh, so I guess we'll never get it back. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. What was in that box anyways? He says, oh, just some Egyptian relics. That's all. That night, Mehmet Bey goes back and takes out the Scroll of Life and reads from it and causes mummy Christopher Lee to rise out of the bog and stride out of it covered in muck and gross gunk. Yeah, I like um, my favorite mummy appearance in this movie is when he's just covered in in just gross shit and stuff because this mummy, overall not my favorite look of a mummy. He He's not really the bandage boring. mummy type. He's more just, I mean... This probably is how bandaged mummies work, where, like, the, you know, maybe the bandages of just, like, they're just, like, part of his body now because the tissue and stuff over thousands of years. But he's kind of just a dirty mummy. He's not really, like, a bandage, like, uh, you know, your traditional... Yeah. Your your Halloween costume mummy, if you will. He's a, he's a little he's a little grosser. He's a little uglier. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a little worse for wear. Yes, but he looks best when he's just got all this crap all over him. He just looks awesome. After Christopher Lee has risen, he's sent to kill Stephen in the mental institution. I don't know how you feel about Christopher Lee's motions or movements. I don't know. To, to me, they looked a little silly. <laughs> you know, like after he starts... Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, you got like a mummy zombie... It's like it's a dated monster, not just in, in the, the cultural side of things, but it's a dated monster even just like, how do you make this thing scary? So I, I do agree, like, the emotion's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know, he's doing his best. But, yeah, not not perfect, but I also don't necessarily know how you make it a whole lot better. I will say I, I, I at least like Christopher Lee's size, his height, his broad shoulders do kind of give the mummy an intimidation factor i think that's appreciated yeah because he's a tall guy like i think he's taller than like all the other actors in the movie karis makes his way to steven and he he scales the wall of the asylum and breaks into his room and kills him yeah. and uh, uh the mummy escapes and nobody knows who did it uh they think that a crazy person just kind of broke in and killed him yeah the the police inspector or whatever he, he says like were there not clear signs of, like, forced entry from the outside, I would just assume it was one of the patients here because this was yeah. clearly a crazy person. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and he's half right. Is he? Is, is Would we call the mummy a crazy person? I'd call Mehmet Bay maybe a crazy person. I guess you're right. Yeah, the mummy here, the mummy, this is maybe a little disappointed, a, a, a little source of disappointment for you, um for you mummy fans out there but the mummy is basically just just a tool in this movie it was very halloween six michael myers yeah. he just kind of follows orders and yeah it's not the not the kind of mummy action i'm, I'm seeking i think but you know whatever mehmet bay who is still looking to get revenge on everybody sends karis out the next night to kill uncle joseph wemple uncle joe he's in john's house i believe and we get this awesome shot of the mummy just kicking open the front doors. <laughs> and they they essentially explode outwards. And he comes flying in and starts choking Uncle Joe to death. I believe 
Peter Cushing shoots him with a revolver, I think, right? But it doesn't stop yeah, him. Yeah, he, he shoots just... him two or two or three times. Yeah, and he claims from a, from a distance of three meters because he's talking to the cops afterwards. Inspector Mulrooney, I think, was his name. Those bullets did nothing to stop Karis. The um, bullets. I don't know if you. I think you would still call them squibs, even though I'm I'm used to squibs being with blood and everything. This movie has incredible squibs for the time. The little effect yeah. of, of the mummy costume being shot looks awesome. There's like a little puff of like, um, it's almost like you hid like a firecracker in Christopher Lee's costume or something. It looks really cool. Like I, I don't, you don't usually see that in old movies like this, you know, movies from the 50s. I'm just thinking of like, I've seen a bunch of Westerns. People always get shot and you don't see a damn thing. They just fall over. You know, this, this was pretty neat. Like you can you can see that those bullets are hitting him. So until at a certain point they don't, and that's that's in the climactic scene. You have you have him get shot, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it looks yeah. awesome. And then they just yeah. keep shooting him, and you don't see anything. They they yeah, got lazy. Then it looks there. a lot less awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moving on to the next awesome squib shot. The next night, so after after Banning tells the inspector, he goes, look. Nothing could stop this mummy. It, it It's a mummy. I'm telling you, this is what I saw, and I'm going to be the next victim. The next night, John is hanging out in his study, and he notices that there's quite a resemblance between his wife and... Ananka. There's also a great line here that I made me laugh out loud. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, was, that like, was a great line. Yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, she, she, was the, she was thought to be the prettiest woman in the world and his wife goes oh that's flattering and he said well remember dear the world was quite small at that time <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that that is a really funny joke <laughs> i i don't know how old I, i'm gonna look this up how old is peter cushing at this time but i mean he's not i mean he seems maybe older than he was yeah but it's only like 13 14 years later he's in star wars and he looks like an old man he was born in 1913 so what's so, that yeah. he's he's in his mid 40s here um, so, he so he's not as then yeah but age. but he's still kind of this um like scrawny kind of scrawny kind of british weirdo looking guy let's talk <laughs> about a smoking hot wife okay like what did he do to get this woman uh an archaeologist man he loves playing yeah again archaeology uh paid very well back then um the, this is uh french born actress yvonne ferno i i suppose is how you'd pronounce that right yes yeah still alive at least, at least when we're recording this, born in 1928. Wow, so she was like a solid 20 years younger than Cushing. Yeah, we're 15. Worked with Federico Fellini, Roman Polanski, uh-oh, and <laughs> um, Michelangelo Antonioni, the filmmaker I've made fun of a lot on this podcast. So, okay. As well as Terrence Fisher, which they don't list that in the, in the lead of the Wikipedia article. They bury that lead. But, you know, Terrence Fisher... He's 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 a horror legend. Um, I I don't know how well known he is compared to like a John Carpenter, you know, the more modern horror filmmakers. But he made so many great British uh, horror movies in the fifties and sixties. Like he probably should be more celebrated and respected even than he is. But a lot of people still know about him. And yeah, because he did uh, the horror of Dracula. He did the first Christopher Lee Dracula movie. He did oh. the first two Frankenstein movies, I think, which those are both great. Uh, I mean, he probably did other Dracula movies in the series too, um, and then I know he did some other ones because some of those best, some of the best Hammer horror movies from the '50s, '60s, early '70s were actually the non-franchise movies. They were just like the random, 
like and there's a movie called Captain Chronos Vampire Hunter, which is pretty freaking great. Uh, there's just like <laughs> random like one-off vampire movies. Some of those are really awesome, and I know he did you know some of those. I'm sure. So maybe not quite as accomplished as Roman Polanski, but hopefully with less of a rap sheet. <laughs> okay, okay, just, okay. No more Roman Polanski. Let's get back to this movie. When Karis does make his way to John, this is where I first took notice of the really awesome squibs when he shoots him twice with like a shotgun or a rifle or something. The mummy's chest just kind of like blows up. Oh, yeah. Which is really neat. Well, then the poor cripple that John is then flips himself over a desk and then grabs like an arrow (laughs) from above his bookcase and stabs him through the gut, which is really cool, too. Amazing stuff. And then just the rest of the scene, he's got this arrow sticking out because even though the arrow breaks, so like the front of the arrow isn't there, he's still got the back of the arrow just sticking out his back. He starts choking John. His wife, Isabel, runs into the room with her hair down. And again, she looks very much like... um, uh, the lady. <laughs> Ananga. I can remember her name. Yeah, that's it. And Karis kind of stops on his tracks. Then he kind of just leaves this yeah. scene, doesn't he? He doesn't yeah, take like he, her. He, yeah. No, he, he just kind of like walks away <laughs> with an arrow in him. He just kind of leaves. Yeah. <laughs> he slumps on back home. Which yeah. home is only like a couple doors away or something. It's, yeah, they, it's, they it's live like in the, the same neighborhood. Over. Well, then speaking of that, John has a feeling that the mummy lives in the neighborhood and has moved into the house uh, next door. So he goes and knocks on the door and comes face to face with uh, Mehmet Bey, who was actually leaving or getting ready to leave to go back to Egypt because he thought his job was done. He thought. Yeah, because when because when when Karis returns home, he starts doing this like prayer thing and he's like, OK, the job's done all three because because the yeah. freaking mummy can't talk, and he sees the mummy back, like, okay, you took care of business, but... So so I kind of like that, like, there's not, like, a big reaction, but you can imagine him, he's opening the door, and he's just thinking, oh, shit, <laughs> I thought this was yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's also interesting, because I never really noticed it until this point in the movie, but the, those two characters never met each other. So, I mean, if yeah. if John had met Mehmet Bey in, in Egypt, uh, maybe things would have been solved a little quicker. This is probably my favorite scene in the movie. Ever like almost every line of dialogue has like two meanings here. Yeah. Because the two are talking and Peter Cushing is trying to find out if he's the guy, if he's if he's come mm-hmm. to kill them and curse them and if he's gonna have a mummy hiding around. And then every line Mehmet Bay has is like condemning the British you know, condemning British archaeologists for what they're doing, even if he's being kind of subtle about it. So really well-written scene. Also gorgeous house, gorgeous interiors, as we kind of talked about earlier. Well, exactly, yeah. So it's Mehmet Bey's house where he has that giant statue of Karnak. Which he hides behind a, like, a revolving, or not a revolving, but, like, a sliding wall, thankfully, because otherwise... like a big four-paneled door or something. And the sarcophagus, thankfully, is also easily hidden because that would probably raise some eyebrows. Well, I also like this scene because they talk about religion at one point. Mehmet Bey uses, like, the present tense at one point, and then he's like, well, there surely can't still be people that worship Karnak or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And the whole time he's talking about, he's like, well, there are, and let me tell you, there's, you know, there's strength behind it. Oh, yeah, because he kind of, he, he insults him. He's like, well, it wasn't Connor, Karnak like a minor deity or something? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> which is yeah. great because I think, I think, I think he knows 
he knows what's going on at this point so he's just trying to like insult this guy and then he's like well you know but to people that really followed karnak you know karnak was was the shit um which you know <laughs> that's probably fair but yeah this is this is the scene where they actually or where mamet bay actually like raises questions that i didn't necessarily expect a movie made in the 50s to raise about the british plundering of, of artifacts and and stuff like that i mean listen i'm not saying the movie came down on the side that a movie today would probably come down on but i i at least like that 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 um that issue is raised um i think there there feels there seems to be something very modern about that because that's brought up all the time with the british museum and for some reason, everyone ignores yeah. all the other museums in the world that have done the same damn thing for the most part. It's just the British Museum always gets ragged on. Greece especially yeah, has a problem I, with it because I, because the Greek, a lot of the Greek artifacts were sold to the British, but they were sold by the Ottomans who controlled Greece the at Greek the time. land at the time. So yeah. it's like, okay, yeah, they, they even though they were sold and purchased legitimately, they weren't sold by the Greek people. But, you know, then, then you have the aspect of like, well, who do artifacts truly belong to? Can that like, you know, there's a lot of like, this is a current debate and this movie is sort of touching upon it. It's interesting because to, to just talk about that debate for a second, I mean, like when it comes to a place like Egypt, you had the British who were working directly with the Egyptian government at the time. And both the Egyptian and French governments were allowed to come in and take artifacts that were signed off as okay by the Egyptian government. There's obviously like a lot more depth and stuff revolving around this period that I'm not going to get into. Oh, yeah, there's there's colonial um, powers and everything. I mean, there's, I guess, the ultra, ultra pro-British Museum or pro, I don't want to say pro-colonial necessarily, but but let's say the the pro-British Museum perspective would be that these artifacts, these, you know, whatever, would not be preserved were they not for Britain. That's a little bit of the argument, I guess. Yeah, well, and on, and on top of that, the British Museum's free to get into. But it's in Britain, you know. If you're if you're from Egypt and you want to partake in your country's ancient history, you have to fly and everything, and, and you got the COVID protocols <laughs> and all that you got, nonsense. You got the COVID. You got the plane tickets. Yeah, I mean, th- there's many sides to this argument. I'm more for one side than the other, but that's also because. Uh, you're a much filthy white person because I'm a filthy white colonialist um but that's also because i uh, uh there's a line in indiana jones and the last crusade uh that i remember and it's indiana when he's on jones the ship. famous famous <laughs> Plunderer. um yeah. no no i was gonna say famous ethical archaeologist yeah. who, who never took any gold idols from places where they were held for thousands of years okay well no. remember remember the third one Though it belongs Remember in a museum, on the line, I assume assume is the one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's yeah. like, it belongs in a museum. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, this is a, going back to the movie. This great scene. This really is my favorite scene in the movie. Just re- really well acted by Peter Cushing, the guy playing Mamet Bay. He's okay. He does his best. He he. It's <laughs> a pretty good accent. I don't know if it's truly Egyptian sounding, but it's at least a consistent accent. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, he's in brown face. I get it. But, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't really conclude that thought, but, you know. So to get back to the climax here, John leaves Mehmet Bey's house, and Mehmet Bey kind of says, 
shit, I gotta take care of this guy. I thought this was over and done with, but I gotta take care of him. And he's apologizing to, to Karnak, and he's gotta read from the Scroll of Life again and get Christopher Lee back up out of bed. <laughs> out of bed. Out his of bed, standing yeah. grave. His standing, yeah. his standing stone bed. Who we 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 completely um, skipped this, by the way. But there was a very, 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 very long flashback scene. Oh yes, yeah. When Peter Cushing was speaking to the cop about about what he thinks is going on, and, and there's the thing, the mummy. I, I guess which yeah. to sum it up quickly, he was Karis uh, was in love with Ananka. Yeah. And he wanted her to have eternal life or something. He was in love with her, and but she was the wife of, like, the pharaoh or whatever, right? Wasn't that it? And, and they couldn't get together because of that. So didn't she kill herself and he was going to bring her back to life? And so they could yeah, be yeah, she's forever? dead. But then he ends up getting mom how does he get mummified he, he starts reading from the scroll of life to bring her back but yeah. as soon as he does that this king's guards break in and everybody catches him so he's he's charged with like blasphemy or something probably right yeah well to to, to punish him uh, they decide to mummify him alive which wrapping him in bandages and putting him in a stone box isn't really <laughs> how you mummify somebody but he was oh yeah you, with mummifying after... you you have to you have to pull the brains out through the nose there's like a whole it's a whole yeah. process it's a whole yeah. thing yeah <laughs> it's a mummification it's a whole thing <laughs> yeah yeah so Karish was forced to stand as like a bodyguard over ananka's tomb for the for the rest of time and you could bring him back to kill blasphemers and people who looked on her face by reading from the scroll of life which is what john's father did at the very beginning of, right. of the film that we didn't see and the well you you say that that was we have two flashbacks. We have one that's yes. the really long one. We also <laughs> yeah. have the flashback when John's father is telling him about what happened to him. And then we, we see Mamet Bay actually in the tomb in, the, in that scene. Yes. Two uh, flashbacks, one really long, one not so long, but both within like 20 minutes of each other or something. They seem to, maybe, maybe more than 20 minutes, but they seem to be almost too close to each other in the movie where i felt like the movie felt really slow at that point because of the flashbacks and everything so to get back to this climax here which is actually pretty like a pretty decent climax for this movie karis is sicked on john again and he knocks out a couple police officers standing guard outside of john's house and stuff karis heads into the study finds john starts immediately choking him And then, kind of like alerted by his cries for help and, and noise and, and the kerfuffle going on, Isabel runs into the room. Because it worked last time, she shouts at Karis and she's like, stop! But she doesn't have her hair down, so she doesn't look like <laughs> like Karis's love. So John has to yell <laughs> as he's being choked to death. He has to yell. I didn't notice the hair was essential to this part earlier in the movie because I feel like it's kind of... I know you mentioned it when we were talking about this, but I don't think the movie really focused on yeah, the hair. Yeah, yeah. So she quickly undoes her hair and puts it down and orders Karis to stop. And he does. And then Mehmet Bey walks in and says, what are you doing? Kill them. Kill her. Karis refuses. Mehmet Bey goes to stab her. But big six foot ten Christopher Lee walks over (laughs) and just kind of wraps one arm around him. And then like rips the knife out of his hand and then like breaks his back against his knee and then leaves him on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. 
And Isabel's so shocked, she kind of, like, passes out. She passes out because that's what women do when they're picked up by monsters. There's no real explanation for it. I mean, it's just (laughs) because he picks her up and Uh, she just immediately, and it's like, oh, they're still doing that in the late 50s. Okay, because that's, like, such, like, an old thing, right? (laughs) It is, yeah. So Karis and Isabel take a bit of a stroll down to the bog. That lovely, lovely swamp set again. Looks better here at night, I think, than it did during the day, too. Yes, yeah. Kara starts walking into the bog with Isabel, and she wakes up and says, Stop! Stop! Put me down! And Karis lets her go, because how can you say no to a beautiful woman? Especially one that looks like your 4,000-year-old dead girlfriend. Especially one that looks like she'd be uh, Peter Cushing's granddaughter, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean... <laughs> I was actually surprised. Exactly. Only fifteen, only fifteen years uh, between those actors. I, I would have expected more than that, actually. Yeah. Well, it's actually less of a, an age gap than what we in have in Halloween movie? Three. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty fucking <laughs> it weird is. ass relationship, it is. too. <laughs> but the best part about the climax in this movie, we get like a dozen police officers standing around the bog with like rifles. And uh, Peter anyways, Cushing's they just started blasting. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I started blasting. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Peter Cushing kind of like gets Isabel to come over in his direction. He goes, honey, when I yell, stay low. <laughs> She's already in like neck deep bog water. He's like, oh, get lower, honey. So then he screams now. And all the police officers just open fire on the mummy. And he's just like, <laughs> he's just like spinning around from the force of all these bullets. We do get a close up of, of like a couple of squibs. But then after that, it's just Christopher Lee just pretending to get shot. There's nothing. Really, yeah. But, but I do yeah. love that we get that close up at least. So Christopher Lee, poor old Christopher Lee, pretends to get shot after actually getting shot. And then slowly, slowly, very slowly starts to sink in the bog while gripping the scroll of life kind of like a terminator 2 ending yeah well it's a less less heroic but you're right he is holding the thing like above his head the, the scroll and he sinks and then he below gives the... a th- one final thumbs up yeah as he, as he goes <laughs> yeah and he sinks below the the surface of the bog and much in the fashion of these older movies the movie ends right there <laughs> yeah i was i was surprised i thought that was something we left in the 30s or, or 40s i thought that was just a universal thing i did not expect Though I did not expect just like boom credits in this movie. That's the Mummy from 1959. Patrick, thanks for putting up with my lack of notes and going off this completely by memory. That's what I did with A Nightmare on Elm Street, which I mean, it's yeah, but you're I've better. Seen dozens of times. Well, I've seen A Nightmare on Elm Street dozens of times. This is probably the first. This was the first time you saw the it, Mummy. It was. I did enjoy it though. So actually, okay. so let me start. I I enjoyed this movie. Sure. All the acting was fine. I didn't have a problem with any of the actors, which some of these older movies, they can be a little distracting. All, all the main players are, are, are fine. Peter Cushing, solid performer, as yes. always. Even Christopher Lee in those flashbacks, he's he's really good. But the sets were all fantastic. Yes. All the, all the Egypt sets. I've never been to Egypt, but I'm going to assume they don't exactly look like that. But uh, well, there's as I think I joked enough. in the commentary track. There's no McDonald's, you know, in, in the in this tomb. When you know the, you, if you're making it look like oh, real Egypt, yeah. it's just going to be trash on the ground everywhere. But Patrick, what did you think about this A fantastic, fun movie? Well, don't speak for me. <laughs> I do enjoy. I do enjoy the movie quite a bit. I think I kind of mentioned the issues I have with it towards the end where. We have that lengthy flashback, which comes a little bit too late in the movie, I think. Like, I think we would have... 
I mean, I know what's going on in the story because I've seen mummy movies before, but I think in, in terms of just storytelling, I think the exposition really needs to come a little earlier. Peter Cushing's awesome. Pretty convincing limp, I, I will say. I, yes, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about his physical acting, which is not something I normally bring up with Peter Cushing. Christopher Lee, not, not my favorite mummy, but uh, an intimidating presence, mainly his size. I think you see a little bit too much of his eyes. I wish they did something a little bit. Because whenever they did the, yeah. the facial close-ups, his eyes his eyes move a lot. He sh- like shifts them around a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a shifty mummy. Yeah, I would have liked maybe like a gross kind of contact look on him, which I don't know if they really did that in the 50s. But I like the movie. Um, the last 15 minutes or so, well, honestly, I mean, the climax, the last 10, 15 minutes or so is exciting, but... Even going back to the scene preceding that, I've mentioned a number of times my favorite scene in the movie. So I'll say like the last half hour or so is like riveting. I loved that all that stuff. So even if it yeah. kind of took us a while to get there and it wasn't the most satisfying ride, all makes it worth it in the end. I do enjoy the movie quite a bit. Might even prefer it to the 32 Mummy. I, you know, I'd have to see that movie again. Same, It's got the same general plot, but it's very different because the mummy is wandering around. I'm going to correct myself. I don't remember what the cool dude's name is in the 99 Mummy. Ardith Bay, it might be that guy's name, but Ardith Bay is the name that Imhotep goes by when he's a human in the 1932 mm-hmm. Mummy. I just realized that. So yeah, so uh, it looks like you got you got Boris Karloff wandering around doing things, and Boris Karloff as the Mummy in the 1932 version, I think, kind of. He's more probably similar to Mehmet Bey, even though he's he has that initial appearance like, you know, the traditional cloth-bound mummy, the Christopher Lee type thing. But Gotcha. But yeah, I, I might prefer this one. This is a this is a very good one. This is one of the better hammer horror films from the um the late fifties into the you know, they had a they had a great run from fifty seven or so into about seventy four, seventy three. Well, I can say as my first hammer horror film, I enjoyed it. I'm going to correct you there. Oh no. <laughs> you didn't you didn't you weren't a part of this episode, but The Quatermass Experiment <laughs> oh, is yes. a Hammer film and you have seen that. I have. I did a little bit of research on this at some point a while ago. I think Hammer kind of started as sort of like B movies. They made a few science fiction movies, Quatermass and maybe something else around the time and that kind of got them a lot of money and then is really 57 is when they went all in on like gothic horror and that's what really kind of launched them into a main british studio possibly a little i say main probably a little bit of a cult appeal just because horror but you know they got i mean those movies at least got international distribution i think this one had warner brothers a lot of them had universal universal owns the rights to a lot of those movies too i think because they're so closely related with the universal monsters because they're essentially like remakes like, I know the um, Hammer Frankenstein movies, it's unlike the Universal series where um, it's a different monster every movie because it follows the scientist, the, the Dr. Frankenstein. They never quite recreate the classic Boris Karloff monster look, and it's because they didn't have the rights to that, like, makeup or something. So all the, oh. even though those movies are great, all the monsters fucking suck. They all look terrible, terrible, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's a movie, I mean... 
Peter Cushing is the real monster in those movies, though, which is what makes him amazing. But Well, speaking of real monsters, let's talk about the monster. Let's talk about the Irish. Uh, yeah, I was going to say the Irish or pagans. Sex between two consenting adults, but one looks 17 and one looks to be in his 50s. I didn't think she looked 17, but she looked... Half his age, yeah. <laughs> oh, he does. He yeah. does ask her how old she is, which that's. I don't know about you. I I have found in my personal life that is always the most romantic thing that I can ask a woman. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, babe, I'm ready. Oh, wait, how, hold on. How old are you? Yeah. <laughs> always can ask I, can a woman. I, can I age. see? Can I see your ID first, please? <laughs> yeah. You must be this tall and this old to ride this ride. One twenty-eight, honey. I'm sorry. You're at least one forty-five, please. <laughs> So, Halloween 3 is a special movie. I think at this point it's earned a place in the heart of a lot of horror fans, but when this came out originally, it was vastly hated. You'll still find people who hate it, including Josh, who has been on this podcast to talk about the first two Halloween films. But the main reason people hate it, the reason people hated it at the time, was this came out in 1982. Halloween came out in 78, Halloween 2 came out in 81, those are both Michael Myers movies. Michael Myers dies at the end of Halloween 2, but as we've seen in every slasher movie ever, you can always get around that, (laughs) you can always find a way. There's no Michael Myers in Halloween 3, they went a different route, it was John Carpenter's plan to do like an anthology series kind of thing. Yeah kind of like what Cloverfield's ended up doing, although Cloverfield has done it as a marketing ploy and to try and tr- trick people into watching Cloverfield movies that aren't really Cloverfield movies. This could have been a really good movie, or his idea would have been a really good idea had this movie just been a little bit better. You know what I mean? Had it had it not been titled Halloween or had it not been part of the quote-unquote Halloween franchise or, or, or the right. first one to divert from that, I, I think it could have done a lot better. And I will okay. say, I've seen this movie multiple times. So you told me, you're like, hey, like, you know, next week we're doing Halloween se- uh, 3, Season of the Witch, and The Mummy from 59. And I started watching Halloween 3, and I was like, holy shit, I've seen this movie, like, a dozen times. I never knew that it was a Halloween movie. Really? So all, yeah, I've always watched on television around Halloween. Okay. Right. <laughs> and I just never knew it was Did a Halloween Did you just not movie. know what the title was? No, no. I would just watch it, and I just wouldn't change the channel, and I would just I'd be like, oh, I remember this movie. So this movie, John Carpenter does not direct. He does the score along with Alan Howarth. Howarth, I still don't know how to say that name. Yeah. He is producer. Looks like he's not the writer. I thought he might have been the writer. But yeah, he. I mean, this this movie still feels like a John Carpenter movie in a lot of ways. It, I, it has one of his best musical scores, I would say. I think um, I'd yeah, probably put the really Christine good. score above it and maybe... I, I like how it opens with that kind of... Spacey, really there's almost 80s. like sound effects are part of the Yeah, part of the yeah. So first off, if you haven't seen this movie, if you if you wrote it off because it's not got Michael Myers in it, or you wrote it off because all the Halloween sequels are trash, you're mostly right about that one, about the latter. <laughs> um, but I still think this is, this is a movie well worth watching. As long as you just don't expect it to be like a Michael Myers... It's, it's not even a slasher movie. It's like this weird supernatural yeah, sci-fi it, it, horror kind of thing just go along with it go with the flow don't expect it to be a halloween movie it's just its own halloween branded movie yeah i would say i would say the nearest comparison i would have with this movie it's a movie that we've done on the podcast the it's stuff a movie that 
Yeah, it was the movie that we did in the Halloween 2 episode. Josh and I covered Halloween 2 and this stuff. There's a, it's very satirical. There, There's a satirical element. To, we're looking at capitalism and, and greed and corporate greed and all that stuff. Consumerism. But it also gets a lot crazier than that. Uh, and that all comes from the villain who proves that all Irish people and nothing is more in- frightening than an Irish person. <laughs> at any rate, we start out October 23rd. And there's a man running for his life at night hiding from a car in like a junkyard a person in a suit attacks him but he's able to free himself by getting a i was gonna say parked car i guess it's not in park that's the problem but he he gets a car to come and crush him (laughs) freeing himself which is the slowest car crush in in the history of car crushes this it pins him between two cars yeah i guess it doesn't need to go fast as long as it just pins him right (laughs) yeah that's true so this man gets to a gas station where we see two things on the television. This is an old, like, way out in the middle of nowhere kind of gas station. At least that's what it appears to be. There is an ad for Silver Shamrock, a Halloween mask company that is doing a big Halloween special slash giveaway on Halloween night. And there's also a little news story that we just see a little bit of about how part of Stonehenge is missing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah let's, let's let's talk about Stonehenge. Have you, you've seen Stonehenge, right? You've been there. Yes. Yeah. How how big are we talking for this? Um, this? I, I understand the weight is the bigger issue than the size, but like, let's just let's you know let's paint a picture in our listeners' minds here. All those stones on the outer ring are blue stones, as far as I'm aware. And the stone that you see at the end of the movie looks about twice the size, maybe yeah, even three was, times I the size. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I thought that was bigger than Stonehenge was when you finally th- see the thing. The problem is you can't get super close to Stonehenge. So listeners, I would say... Well, it's because Chevy Chase um, in European Vacation ended up backing his car into it and <laughs> knocking it all over. That's why yeah, exactly. they won't let you near it. Rough estimation from 10 years ago, the stones are probably something like 20 feet high, maybe 15 feet high. Okay. Five to eight feet wide and like sure. several feet thick for sure. Like they're huge. But you're right. What we see at the end of the movie is, is much bigger, bigger than that. Probably probably two times as big at least. At any rate, this man gets into the gas station. There's a little jump scare when he um, frightens the gas station attendant. He collapses... He's clutching a pumpkin mask, which we have seen already is one of the Silver Shamrock masks. Mm-hmm. Then we meet our protagonist, Dr. Dan Chalice. Probably, I don't want to say, part of me wants to say he's like the worst protagonist ever, but I don't mean that <laughs> in, in that he's, I just like, if you're structuring a movie, this is not your protagonist. You know what I mean? In, in a, like a, yeah. It's such a weird person to, to lead, to captain this movie, but I think that's part of what makes it really special. But anyways, he's Tom Atkins. Everybody loves Tom Atkins. Who's a middle-aged drunk doctor in this film. Tom Atkins, of course, star of The Fog with uh, director John Carpenter. He's in that. Mm-hmm. He's, he sleeps with Jamie Lee Curtis in that movie, by the way, as far as Ugh. that's even a worse age <laughs> cap, I think, or maybe about the same. <laughs> he's, he's a minor role in Lethal Weapon. You know, you and I have talked a lot about, like, middle age and, you know, grandpa action and stuff like that. I think (laughs) 
Yeah. I think he would have been a, he never quite had that like big action lead role, but I think he would have been perfect for it, you know what I mean? Cuz he's got this like badass presence about him and I've seen him with guns a lot and I've seen him shoot people, but he's ne- he's never like the lead action guy in like cuz this isn't an action movie. I think if he had been that age today, maybe he would have been like a, like in a good grandpa action movie. Dr. Dan Chalice, as I said, he's a drunk. He arrives <laughs> home, his wife hates him. His wife is played by, I don't remember if it's Annie, I, I get the I get the two characters mixed up, but she's one of Jamie Lee Curtis's friends in Halloween. It's a small role. You hear her nagging him on the phone a few times. but And by the way, like I say nagging, but no, she's 100% in the right. This guy's an awful father, awful yeah, husband. He, he's a bit of an alcoholic. Oh, more than a bit. He's, he's a big alcoholic. He's a yeah. doctor and an alcoholic, which is something that shouldn't be mixed, that's for sure. Yeah passing off his kids on his wife apparently although he doesn't do that in this movie things actually come up and he passes his kids off well but he still just takes off doesn't tell the family like anything that he's he's we're talking we're talking richard dreyfus in close encounters level of just awful father i think uh he's he's that (laughs) bad but anyways so he arrives home he gets his kids some halloween masks but they already have their silver shamrock masks which they're excited about so the silver shamrock mask, we, we see the ad again. And I do like, first of, first of all, the whole silver shamrock jingle thing. Absolute earworm. You will struggle to get it out of your head after you've seen this movie. Partially, I mean, it is just genuinely very catchy. But it also, you hear it like dozens of times in this movie. And that's by design. And I like how there's even characters in the movie that are annoyed with it. I mean, it's just yeah. after a while, you kind of, like like the mother here in this scene just, is just like, would you turn that shit off or something? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Silver Shamrock as a company. Dominate the Halloween mask market, apparently. We learn that later. But they make three masks. What is this company? I, you know? Yeah. You could probably make a shit ton of money nowadays if you made, like, I know I'm going to say these aren't masks, but the Halloween costumes. If you made, let's say, if you if you're a Halloween company, you only want to make three costumes, but you want to make as much money as possible. What costumes do you make? I'd say Harley Quinn has to be one of them, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably say Batman, especially because that's more that'd be more for kids, but Harley Quinn more for adults. Spider Man. Spider Man. Yeah, Spider Man seems to be. You see more Spider Man than Superman. Yeah, I'll give you that. Or, like, if you want one for, for adults, specifically for adult women, it, it would be, like, sexy. That's Harley cat. Quinn. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Harley Quinn. You're right. Sexy Harley Quinn. Sexy Harley Quinn has overtaken sexy cat lady. <laughs> sexy sexy cat lady. Not to be confused with sexy cat woman, which is a different thing. That's the first unbelievable thing about this movie, other than the Stonehenge thing. <laughs> yeah, it's literally, we're three <laughs> minutes in and it's the second unbelievable <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. Is that you have a Halloween mask company making three masks and a dumb fucking jingle on TV is making kids across the United States go nuts for these fucking masks. And like every single kid has these masks. At this point, we don't know it's nationwide. At this point, we don't. Mm-hmm. Because th- there are local jingles and stuff that just like... If, if it's a local television commercial, like stuff just that you see all the time, like um, in Milwaukee, we have this um, law firm that advertises during fucking everything, especially during sports events. 
And so it's like everyone knows the one call, that's all, because that's his that's his thing. So you do have those like local <laughs> commercials. I, I believe that, but I, I do think that the, the three masks is key. That's not. I mean, I'm I'm sure that's a budget thing that they you know we need to make a lot of these masks and and, and it's, but let's only make three. But there's also these masks are designed by is this a Don Post or something Post. As far as anyone who designs Halloween masks go, he's he's famous. He he's like the legendary Halloween mask designer. Among others, I believe he designed the original, the William Shatner Captain Kirk mask, which became the Michael Myers mask. He also, I know, did the classic Tor oh. Johnson mask, which you see in the background in some scene in this when they go to the, the guy's store. Maybe it's Ted Post. One of those posts, one, either Don or Ted is the director of Hang 'em High, which is a Clint Eastwood Western. The other one is the Halloween mask designer. One of them's that one. The three masks. We've got Pumpkin, Skull. We've got which, yeah. Which one are you going with? You're you're a kid in 1982. Which which mask do you want? Skull, skull. Though pumpkin does look good. I I would go pumpkin. I understand we're complaining about the three masks. There only being three masks, but you do see later on that they, these kids accessorize the shit yeah, out of these yeah, things, yeah, which like, is great like, for them. Which I think that's what you would kind of need to do. Yeah. You know, so you could throw a witch hat on top of the pumpkin hat or pumpkin yeah. mask or something, you know. I remember do, do I remember there's one very brief scene where there's a kid walking past the camera and he's got the skull mask on, but he's dressed like a clown. Yeah. But still, three masks, come on. Do a skull mask and then dress like Keith Richards. <laughs> so anyways, Dr. Dan Chalice gets called into the hospital. He goes in there and it's um it's the gentleman who collapsed at the gas station who was brought in so this guy is is like almost catatonic. He says a few things about like they're they're all going to kill us all or something. Yeah, he says some. But so they end up giving him a tranquilizer and or this I I suppose this wing of the hospital is being worked by two people. There's a doctor. There's a nurse, mm-hmm. which is crazy. But <laughs> but there's no one at the hospital, so you know no no patients in this area. So that's fine. A gentleman in a suit comes into the hospital he sneaks around eventually gets into the room with this guy and the patient and he kills him by i thought he like poked his eyes out but we have a line later about someone pulled the guy's skull apart yeah well like and that's what i thought he was doing at first too but then you what you see what he's doing is he's got his fingers in his eye sockets yeah there's a pulling at the end of it yeah and then he pops his eye sockets and yeah. nasal cavity out which is pretty gross Alerted to the death and to the intruder, Dr. Chalice chases after this guy as he's leaving. We see this guy get into a car, douse himself with gasoline, and then go full Tibetan monk as he lights himself <laughs> on fire, which explodes the car, which is amazing. Yeah, it's a great shot. It's it's awesome. Yeah. So, shit has literally hit the fan, and then um, at some point, Ellie, who's the daughter of the dead guy, the first dead guy, the dead hospital patient guy <laughs> comes in to and, and just no one no one knows what the fuck is happening right and then we yeah. see that apparently the last five or six days dr chalice has just spent drinking because he's just hanging out at a bar when ellie comes in introduces herself and talks to him and apparently she's been doing some research. Well, she knows first of all that dr chalice was among the last people to see him alive she asked if he said anything but she's done some research. So so the guy, 
he owned a uh, like a Halloween store or maybe just a store, but they sold a lot of Halloween stuff. Yeah, he owned a toy store. Like not long before he died, he had gone to Santa Mira, which is a town kind of in the middle of nowhere. It used to be an old rural town, but now it is where the Silver Shamrock factory is. And Silver Shamrock, despite only making three Halloween masks, is like an empire, not just in the Halloween market, but they're just like... <laughs> They're like Google or Amazon. But the two of them plan to go to Santa Mira, and it's pretty clear. It's never, like, it's never vocalized, but you get the impression Dr. Chalice just is avoiding his wife. Yeah. Have we already mentioned that that they're divorced? No, we haven't. But I guess I I should be phrasing it that he's avoiding his kids, really. Yeah. No, you're right. We haven't mentioned that they're divorced, but... Yeah, it's just a weird relationship. Again, you, you just this is not your typical protagonist. There's also, because he, he's on the phone, he's telling her that he's got to go out of town on some, like, medical conference or something. And then he hangs up the phone, and he's walking towards Ellie's car, and he's just got this six-pack of beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just really funny. Yeah, well, it's also weird, because from, like, that point onwards, you know that he's he's into Ellie. I actually think... We can watch this movie and say, oh, yeah, he's into Ellie because she's an attractive woman. I actually don't think there's anything really suggesting that about the two in terms of, like, the, Tom Atkins' performance or whatever until they, like, start making out, which which almost makes it weirder to me that the, the romance literally comes out of nowhere. Obviously, you're saying that maybe Ellie's not into him, but that he's into her. I suppose that's implied just in the why else would he go with her on this? Yeah, yeah adventure unless it's really just an excuse to drink beer away from his kids i, I do think that's a, is as much a possibility as anything <laughs> hey, it's a great excuse to be honest <laughs> yes it's a fascinating character dr dan chalice but i do love the way tom atkins plays him because tom atkins has this just like no nonsense kind of bluntness about him i believe tom atkins is this like highly functioning alcoholic he reminds me of the fella who plays the sheriff in Stranger Things. Sure. What's that guy's name? No, I, I know what you mean, because he has kind of the, the same middle-aged kind of like half-schlubby, half-badass kind of thing about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And he's also yeah. just kind of like tired and annoyed with a bunch of people's bullshit, you know? <laughs> sure, <like> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously Stranger Things, there's not an original bone in Stranger Things' body. This could easily be... <laughs> <laughs> that could easily be, have been going this for could a have Halloween easily been thing. Tom yeah. <laughs> they get to Santa Mira. They stay at a motel. They, we learn briefly that the town was founded sometime in the 19th century. It was a it was a big farming town. Saw a lot of Irish immigrants, and then this guy named Connell Cochran comes in, builds the Silver Shamrock. It's it, at first it's a toy company. Then it just really takes off. And then we learn later on he ended up firing everybody who worked there before and then bringing in his own workers. Yeah. (laughs) There's a line about it like, oh, this is an old, I think he calls it like a company town or something because they're driving around. They they feel like nothing is happening in this town. And we ultimately see why. But essentially there's not any jobs in this town it's basically it's silver shamrock or you run the motel or that's it well and and that's so that's the other weird thing about this movie one why did they pick irish people to be the bad guys uh because Samhain. <laughs> okay <laughs> no i mean because because Samhain, i i don't think it was all irish i mean it's like a celtic thing 
So it was probably on all of the British Isles, but I think I think America hears Celtic and they only think Irish because, you know, Boston Celtics, stuff like that, you know, you don't think of because you, you you don't think of, you know, pre let alone pre Norman yeah. England. This is pre Saxon England even when it was where's yeah. where's the Celtics you know, the Celtic peoples were. But it's, you know, so I think I think that's why Irish also, you know, nineteen eighty two. Irish people were violent at this time. Let's be perfectly honest <laughs> about that. I mean, it's, it's the elephant in the room. I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, it's this is not a pleasant time. You know, whether whether you want to argue it's justified or not, this was um, Irish violence was on a lot of people's minds. I think in 1982, right? Isn't this right around? Um, they tried they tried to bomb Thatcher right around sometime in the early 80s. I think. Oh, I wish they'd got her. A lot of people do. <laughs> a lot of people do. <laughs> All kinds of stuff was going on. So let me ask you this. If you're going to make a movie that's set in the Halloween season, and you're going to have a company that makes Halloween costumes and sells them all over the United States, and there's like a, a there's an evil plot behind that, why are you calling the company the Silver Shamrock? Because you could have called it like the Purple Pumpkin or something, you know? They do mention it starts as a toy company. Per- well, first of all, and I want to address this because this will have something to do with last week. When we were listing urban legends, I mentioned the alligator in the sewer. I forgot to mention, possibly even more than the alligators in the sewer, the most classic urban legend, and that is the razor blades and the Halloween candy. Yes. Yeah, that's did, a good I, one, yeah. I, I, I do, Actually, I do that, want to mention. that did happen in Niagara Falls when I was a kid. Did it really, though? Or it because did, that's what they, they address in urban legend where everyone says they know of a story, but then it's... Yeah, anyways, whatever. I You're you're full of it. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I guess I, I bring that up to say that, like, if I was structuring this, if I was writing this movie, I would, and I wanted, like, an evil Halloween businessman to want to murder children, spoilers, because that's what we get into later, but I would probably go the Halloween candy route. I'm, I'm just saying that's what I yeah. would have done. I'm not, I'm not... That's not a complaint. I'm just saying, like... Well, see, and I and I agree with you because I was thinking the same thing. Why don't you poison the candy or? Yeah, does Stonehenge really need to be involved here? Is no. The question. Well, then, he, and then here's the thing: <laughs> they call it season of the witch, but there's really no witches involved. There's like the word witchcraft is spoken once. Once. <laughs> I believe once. Yeah, once, and it's not even witchcraft. It's it's more like pagan. To be fair, to a lot of people, to people that don't know better, paganism and witchcraft are the same thing. I mean, that's just. It's not true, but that's just what a lot of people... Yeah. I'm not sure I know the difference. <laughs> In regards to this movie, you could have had a candy company called the Candy Cauldron that was run by oh, like God. a bunch of witches that are like a thousand years that's old. True. And they're just going to like true. put this plan into motion to poison all, all the this, children yeah. in America or something, you know? Why limit it to America? Oh, yeah, exactly. The, the world. Go for, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Evil. Do the Go world. Go for Margaret Thatcher's children. Does she even have children? Uh, probably not. She was the Iron Lady. Well, she was married, though, because we see Dennis and For Your Eyes Only. <laughs> now, one more complaint about this movie. All Season right. of the Witch, but they don't use the song anywhere in the movie. You're talking about the Donovan song. Yes, Donovan, yeah. Could have been a rights issue. Who knows? There's also a film called Season of the Witch. There are two films I can think of called Season of the Witch. One... Mm-hmm. Starring Nicolas Cage. It's like a fantasy, epic fantasy, like, sword fighting thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw it. Don't remember a damn thing about it. I want maybe Ron Perlman's in it. I don't know. Just Nicolas Cage fighting with the sword, whatever. Then there's also a film from the early 70s from director George A. Romero 
I don't know if his, his like he made it around the time of the crazies, um, so it might have been his follow up to Night of the Living Dead or something. Not a half bad movie, but it's uh, it's not a horror movie. It's like this drama that has some witchcraft in it. But I think some distributor distributor or something was like watching the movie and is like, hey, this is pretty good, but we can't sell this because it's just like a boring drama. So why don't you throw some hardcore sex <laughs> scenes in there, make it a porno? And he's just like, no. And so they just released it as it was, and, it, and as a result, it made no money. But it's not a bad movie. Uh, well, same with this movie. It made no money. Well, that's okay. I wanted to address this first of all. All right. I can, I can pull up the exact numbers, or, you know, the exact, the, the Wikipedia numbers. Okay. Halloween 3 made $14.4 million on a $2.5 million budget. Okay. So the argument, the, argu- the argument or whatever, the, the, the story goes... I mean, it made money, but it didn't do as well as they wanted it to. It didn't do as well as the previous two Halloween movies. So they're like, okay, let's go back to Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. So what did I say? Four, what did I say? Fourteen point five million on a yeah. or no? Yeah. Okay, so fourteen point four on two point five. Yeah. Halloween four comes out. We get Michael Myers. He's back. He's back, baby. Five million dollar budget. So bigger budget. Seventeen point eight million dollars mm. box office take. So virtually no no change in terms of did we need to abandon the anthology format so soon? Because it feels like until obviously 20, 2018, it, it feels like the, 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 the Michael Myers sequels after Halloween 2 were not blockbusters by any means, you know. So I, I do think it's, yeah. it's funny that this movie gets the reputation for like, oh, it was a flop and everything. It's like it did about as well as the other ones for the most part. I didn't know that. And again, when we started this, the discussion of this movie, I said that I liked the idea of anthology movies, you know, all about Halloween, Halloween time, the season of Halloween. And I wish that they had kept that because that could have been really, really interesting instead of just a fucking dude with a Captain Kirk mask on running around for eight, nine movies. Well, we do get some Samhain stuff eventually in this in the series, some uh, witchcraft type stuff, but that's when they're really jumping the shark. We do get um, a reference to Samhain in Halloween too. Samhain was the was the sort of the Celtic precursor, I guess you could say, to Halloween because you have um, most holidays that we still celebrate today. They had they had their origins in like Roman, in the Roman religion or something. Christmas was what was uh, Christmas was the solstice. Juvenalia, I think, became something like you have all these like Roman things. And then Halloween was was a Celtic one or a Celtic origin. I don't know how factual the whole like human sacrifice on Samhain is. I'm sure it probably happened. I don't feel like it happened in yeah. the numbers that this film reports it as. But anyways, I wanted to bring that up. <laughs> It's refreshing. Maybe it's because we have an Irish actor here in Dan O'Hurley, who we haven't gotten to, but he pronounced the word correct. He pronounces the word correctly. Samhain. Donald Pleasance in Halloween Two looks at that word written on a chalkboard and is like Samhain, and is like, "No, fuck you." I mean, because <laughs> Irish language. I'm not saying I know. Yeah. I know Irish. I don't. I don't speak Irish. I can say a few. But sentences. you are Irish. I'm German too. I don't know a lick of German. But the the Irish language is not. At least not intuitive in terms of like looking at the pronunciation. It's not probably not as bad as Welsh, but it's very. I mean, it's it's in the same linguistic family where like I can look at a word that's in Portuguese or 
you know, any of the romance languages and have a decent idea of how to pronounce it. And then I look mm-hmm. at like something in Irish and, and it's like, oh, I think this is how it's pronounced. And then there's just like, it's just way off, you know, that's just the yeah. Irish language. So I understand like a casual like myself or something, seeing the word Samhain and being like, oh, Sam Hain, of course. But it's like, no, it, if you're going to put that in the movie, have the guy say it right. <laughs> Would have been a nice introduction. A lot of children watching Halloween too could have learned a little bit about the Irish language, you know, if if Donald Pleasant said it right. Anyways, okay, so here at this Irish run motel, a couple other people are staying there. Well, first of all, Chalice and Ellie pretend to be husband and wife to so as to not raise suspicions. Then we have the Cupfer family, who is in an RV. For some reason, they're staying at a motel as well. I thought that's why you have an RV is to yeah. not have to do that. <laughs> so we got Buddy Cupfer, whatever his wife's name is, and then his son, who's Little, little buddy. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have some other lady. Was her name Betty or something? She's like a business lady. Uh, yeah. No, uh, no. Betty is the wife. Gra- Betty is Buddy's Grace? wife. Marge. Marge. That's it. It's Marge. There was some problem with her order, with her Silver Shamrock order. And the Cupfers, mm-hmm. Buddy Cupfer, is a salesman, we learn later. He has sold more silver shamrock masks than anyone in the country. So they are there sort of as uh, on like a goodwill, you know, like here, come visit the factory thing. It's never addressed by any of the characters, but we do learn that the town has a six o'clock curfew. The voice of the, secu- uh, the, voice of the curfew announcer, and I think it's the voice on a couple other things, is apparently Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, really? I wouldn't have known that. So what Wikipedia tells me. So after the town is shut down, Dr. Chalice and Ellie may or may not sleep together here initially because Chalice says, uh, I think Chalice is trying to be polite. You know, he's probably recognizing I'm, I could be this woman's grandfather. And he's like, hey, I should probably get a second. We should probably get a second room or something. And then she's like, no, that would look weird. It would look suspicious. He's like, yeah, well, I, I'll sleep on the floor. And then she's like, where would you like to sleep? And then they just start making out. I mean, they probably sleep together there. But later on, I mean, Chalice goes out for a walk. He meets a guy that used to work in town. He says something about, like, wanting to throw Molotov cocktails at the factory. And then after Chalice goes back to the motel room, this poor gentleman is attacked by a couple of men in suits who pull his head off, which is amazing. And it's uh, Yeah, it's really cool. It's shot in a way where you don't see everything you know it's, it's shot kind of tastefully it's it's mm-hmm. great lighting and great cinematography in this movie it's dean cundy the same guy that did the cinematography on the first two halloween movies but still really gory too i mean it's it's weird this is not a slasher film and this is so much gorier than the first halloween movie i think it's probably even gorier than halloween too well and th- the thing about this head decapitation that's great is there's this kind of <laughs> <laughs> like this wide shot mm-hmm. taken from somewhere in like the scrap heap of the two suited men standing there and the and the headless corpses are just shooting a fountain of blood out of the top yeah. of it between oh, the yeah. two of them and then it falls over <laughs> mm-hmm. and then it just cuts away it's great it's kind of comical actually but it's just it just looks awesome yeah also the guy i, I believe it's the guy who pulls off the head is dick warlock who played michael myers in halloween too he's also a stunt man who's been who's stunt coordinator on this film. He's stunt coordinated a couple other movies that we've covered. 
Uh, and I know he worked Did, on Body Double. <laughs> Dick Warlock isn't a real name. Uh, yeah, no, it's it sounds like a fake name, but it's it's a real name. I mean, Dick Warlock, I, I think, um, Penis Wizard, <laughs> you know, as the the synonymous, <laughs> anything like that. Uh, penis Wizard, Vulva Witch, Amazing Man, that Dick Warlock. He might have worked on the stuff as well. I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, I know I know he's worked on a few movies that we've done. I haven't mentioned him yet though. So. While Chalice and Ellie are sleeping with each other again, Marge is fiddling with her mask, notices, or I guess she already, I think, so So the mask, on the back of it, there's like a uh, silver shamrock logo, kind of logo emblem. Kind of reminds me of those things that you put on like the back of your cell phone to kind of like hold it, yeah, you know, yeah. those pop, whatever, pop sockets, whatever those things are yeah. called, kind of looks like that. <laughs> yeah. That's come off, and I think that's that's the problem she's complaining about, but she's fiddling with it. Then it zaps her, and it blows a hole in her face, essentially. This is really nasty stuff. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. For, for anybody who hasn't seen this movie, it looks like she gets hit square in the mouth with, like, this laser beam. Yeah. And you know when you peel a banana and you have, like, the peels hanging open? It's like oh, sure, yeah. somebody peeled her lips away from her teeth. That's what it looks like. So Marge gets taken away. She's still, I mean, we're told she's alive, but we don't really know. But she gets taken away. She gets put in a silver shamrock van and gets taken away to, and we're told, to the to the factory because they have the best medical care there. And then this is where we finally meet Connell Cochran, played by Irish actor Dan O'Herlihy. Uh, he's in RoboCop. I, I've seen him probably in a few other things. He's he's awesome in this movie. There's no way around it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I couldn't tell you what else he's been in. But he is amazing. He's um, very, like, soft-spoken, polite. He has a very soft Irish accent, like... Um, like a nice Irish lilt. I, I'm, I was tempted to say, like, he, he has the accent of, like, an Irish person who's, like, lived in the United States for 50 years, because I'm sure that's what he actually is at this time. Except I have... <laughs> I have a couple of cousins from Ireland who have lived in the United States for 60 plus years and their accents are as thick as hell. So, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. You know, they still <laughs> sound, sound like like they're living in Ireland and everything. So, but no, he has, you can tell that he's Irish, but it's very soft and he's he's got kind of a, I would almost describe his voice as like, it's kind of deep, but he seems to soften it. Just um, like to to sound very polite, and mm-hmm. I I think he pulls this off well. Um, and then when he gets more threatening later on, he also pulls that off well, of course. But the next day, Ellie and Doctor Chalice go to the Silver Shamrock factory to continue their investigation. Or they're they're basically trying to say like, okay, we don't we don't know what happened to this order, and they say like, oh no, that order was re- was picked up. And it's like, okay, did you remember anything about about the guy that picked it up? Like, where was he going? Like, is they're still trying to find out what happened to her dad. While they're there at the factory, they run into the Kupfer family again. And then the Kupfer family is about to be taken on a tour of the factory. And so they request that Ellie and Dr. Chalice, who I think are going by Smith. Yeah. They ask that they join them. So, you know, the factory tour, we see them going through, like, the, the pouring the molds and all that stuff. Then little Buddy wants wants a mask but Connell Cochran stops him and says no no these masks haven't gone through final processing yet and he gives him another mask this one having been wrapped in plastic and then there's some like after that part of the tour the, the 
you know, Buddy's dad is like, you know, final processing. What's, what's he on about? It's just a mask. And then they're like, yeah. So they, so they ask <laughs> Connell Crocker, and he's like, oh, a little, it's just final processing, just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, it's just a quality inspection, right? But obviously we can tell, like, okay, yeah. something's going on in that final processing <laughs> room, especially we see this, like, no admittance sign and everything. Else. So the tour... I guess concludes, or at least it concludes for Ellie and Chalice, who go to leave. At this point, they notice a lot of people in suits just kind of watching them, and then they see a big, like, garage door open, and Ellie recognizes her dad's car there. And she goes to, she's about to go there and, you know, see it up close, but then the people in suits stop her. Somewhere around this point is when I kind of realize, oh, we, those people in the suits never actually talk. Like, there's something going yeah. on, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, to be honest, like I kind of figured something was going on from from after from when oh, well, that guy I mean, yeah, he fire, rips the head but, off, sure. Yeah, but well, I yeah, that just yeah. Wait, which which part were you saying? I because I I think the <laughs> Oh, I, yeah, I guess he breaks the skull. Yeah, they do a couple almost well, supernatural. Well, I was, was going to say something weird's going on when when a guy walks into a car calmly and lights himself on fire and blows I mean, he's up. He's just a Tibetan monk. Tibetan <laughs> monks, they, they do they take vows of silence? They might. <laughs> <laughs> and just this Irishman's just hired a bunch of Tibetan monks to to work at his factory and be the Muslim yeah I know I factory. mean is this is this how they tried to take out Thatcher in the Brighton Hotel bombing was it just a was it just a robot uh, who lit himself on fire in a car might have been robotic Tibetan monks <laughs> robotic IRA Tibetan monks <laughs> anyways okay so uh, we've been kind of skipping over this thing but there's uh, there's a part of um, part of the plot is uh, Chalice is in close contact with the coroner because he's Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what the hell is up with the guy that blew himself up in the car. And the coroner, who's a lady that he kind of hits on a little bit. So again, just kind of like, who who doesn't this guy sleep with? But he... (laughs) His um, his (laughs) ex-wife. She she thinks there's some mistake because it it seems that everything that's been sent into her office has just been car parts there doesn't seem to be any like body parts there there's a few checkups with her throughout the movie and she never really knows what's going on but she gets killed eventually by a robot who breaks into the coroner's office and (laughs) stabs her with like a drill or something some kind of medical tool maybe yeah i I don't know for sure it's just like a hand drill and i'm like why is that yeah yeah i thought it was (laughs) I, i didn't think it was a medical thing but i don't know I'm, I'm i'm giving the movie a little bit of credit here i, I didn't remember it being a scalpel but like yeah he's just a coroner thing what are they doing? i don't know there's they're fixing the phone line in the in the coroner's office maybe something who knows after this factory tour chalice and ellie go back home Ch- they get split up and i'm not sure when that does chalice go for like a walk or something he, he goes to try to call the coroner from That's the motel okay. desk phone, but it's been disconnected. Because, well, at this point, I think they're also trying to call the police, too, because oh, now yes, they've that, seen that, the yeah, car. So I think yeah. it's probably the police more than the coroner, but I get it. He's on the phone with the coroner a lot. So then he gets <laughs> back into the room. Ellie's not there, but then all the people in suits break into his hotel room or motel room. He escapes, and he goes running and hiding. He eventually makes his way to the factory, which is where we see that Ellie is being held captive. She has been captured by these robots. I mean, we haven't technically learned they're robots yet, but, you know. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> goo-filled robots. The reveal happens here just in a minute. It's actually a really awesome re- reveal. Tom Atkins gets into the factory. He opens the door, sees a woman knitting, and is like, hey, I need your help. And he shakes her a bit, and then her head falls off. And we see that there's all these gears and stuff, kind of like an automaton-type yeah. robot, like not really like a modern, not a Boston Dynamics robot. You know, this is like an old-timey kind of thing. <laughs> Boston Dynamics, yeah. Right, you know, those those, those little... Um, creepy dogs. Well, the creepy dogs, but uh, no, it's, it's some Japanese company that makes the guys that look like astronauts. They look, look like spacemen. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, uh, what does it call? Like, like like Asimo or something like that? Was that it? Asimo, yeah, I don't know. Robot? But no, you're right. Boston Boston Dynamics does the dog. I forgot about that. I, I, was, I was picturing them doing the astronaut, but no, you're right. Great reveal. Then he gets in a fight with one of the suit people and he's getting like strangled but then he's able to um get on top of the guy and then he punches through his chest into just a bunch of yellow goo and he pulls out a bunch of cords and stuff and then there's goo coming out of this guy's mouth so okay all the people in suits are robots we now know that also i just like the detail again we get this knitting lady because conal cochran enters the room just after this and he says something about like her being a classic or something it'll be hard to duplicate yeah. that and i do like because we see the the automaton like very old-fashioned type of robotics and then this other guy that he's just punched through all these cords it feels more modern so i kind of like mm-hmm. that little detail looks like he's been working on these robots for quite some time or something we get the reveal of the evil plan here which is a, a very long reveal it's 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 a layered reveal there's there's layers to it goes on for a long time but this is this is my favorite stuff in the movie <laughs> like an ogre he takes him into the final processing room he reveals obviously that he's built these robots and i think he says something about like you know just the just the final part of it it's like it's not too different from making masks anyway so in the final processing room we see the stonehenge piece um <laughs> just, just standing in the middle of it there's all these people doing research on it scraping parts off of it there's a lot of computers or at least for the 80s, this was a lot of computers, I, I, I'll, I'll say. Yeah, there's like there's like three computers and like <laughs> yeah. 15 television screens. <laughs> Listen, there's enough to get someone to the moon. You know, at least there was in 1969, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. In terms of just the memory, it's like I feel like those computers were so much weaker than my laptop is now, but my laptop still freaks out if I try to play a game of Dead by Daylight, and it's like... Somehow the processing on those old things <laughs> got people to the moon. It's crazy. Like it's insane. But anyways, so, uh, the, so the I guess the so the first part of the reveal is I've got robots working for me. The second part of the reveal <laughs> is I smuggled in Stonehenge or part of it. And there's a there's a kind yeah. of a self aware line where he's like, "Here's Stonehenge. You wouldn't believe." how we got it here but then he doesn't elaborate on it at all which is great because there is no explanation you could possibly write that makes sense oh yes i see how they stole stonehenge (laughs) no exactly yeah you're not lifting it away with a helicopter no yeah it could be like king kong versus godzilla where they do the um the balloons they pick up king kong (laughs) that's right yeah Please, please note that most versions of King Kong just skip the part where they get where they transport King Kong from Skull Island to Manhattan. He's just back in Manhattan and don't ask questions because they also like <laughs> the writers of Halloween three kind of realize it's kind of hard to, you know, truly 
make this believable. So that's part that's part two of the reveal. Part three is the demonstration, and this is done on the poor old Kupfer family who get taken into a room that's made to look like a living room, but in actuality there's nothing to it. There's no windows or anything. Living room? More like death room. <laughs> oh, you. But yeah, so they get locked in. They're starting to, I think the wife is starting, is starting is saying, like, this is starting to feel a little weird, let's be honest. And then, But, like, Kupfer has, like, you, you feel bad for him because he feel, he's he has, like, so much faith in Connell Cochran and yeah. the stupid company. He's, he even has a line earlier where he's like, I, you know, I just wish, you know, you know how I plan ahead. I just wish he would take future orders. And I, yeah. love, I love that little <laughs> yeah. detail. It's like, yeah, he's not taking future orders. We know why. <laughs> um, the television starts on. It's it's running the not not the commercial. It's not the it's not the Silver Shamrock commercial. This is the actual special. This is the big giveaway that they always yes. advertise. Yeah. Be sure to watch <laughs> yeah. the big giveaway at nine. It's kind of like a strobe, but it's just it's the really repetitive music, and it's just it's, I think it's the pumpkin, right? It's just the it closer, is, yeah. closer, yeah. closer, closer on the jack o' lantern, and you see the, kind of the flashing lights. And the whole thing is you're supposed to watch this wearing your mask, which. I shouldn't say no child. No child over the age of five would watch television with a mask on. I think when you're, like, really young, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm never taking this off, maybe. But but anyways, little buddy <laughs> wearing his mask right in front of the television. While the two parents are arguing, he drops over dead. And then out of his mask and thus out of his head come bugs and bugs and all these all these bugs. We did <laughs> We did. We did bugs see and a bugs bug. And all these bugs. We did see a bug come out of um, Marge's mouth earlier. Yes. Yeah. And then we get some snakes too, which you know, as a big fan of snakes, I always appreciate. And the snakes are what kill the Cupfers. I, I don't think we see what takes out Marge, but we see the snake bite Big Buddy in like the shin. First off, this scene is really amazing. Amazing, yeah, but it's also graphic without being graphic because the mask starts to kind of rot off buddy's face yes and it looks yeah. really almost looks neat. like it's melting and then as soon as he hits the floor you just have just a multitude of insects just start pouring out of his mm-hmm. mouth which, which you don't even see his mouth all you can see is his eye through like this half rotted yeah. melted mask. it's mostly just the mask but but the mask is a substitute for his head here basically the only thing i was thinking of the whole time that this was going on was like what a convoluted and like slow way to kill people. Oh, you I know. know. Like... That's why it's amazing. <laughs> that's that's why it's so great. Uh, it's so stupid. <laughs> it's just incredible. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, we got to talk about it. I mean, they just killed a kid. This is not something that happens in a yeah. lot of movies. Let alone, it's usually not the plot of movies. Essentially, the plot, the bad guy's plan is to kill every child in America, which is awesome. <laughs> it's so cool and, and of course famously i don't like children but that's beside the point like this is just <laughs> so dark and it's so silly there's something just so awesome about it too we haven't i guess we haven't established all of it but there's a piece of stonehenge that goes into every mask and that's the final processing yeah and like stonehenge because stonehenge has is, a magic power yeah like like a like a pagan demonic power I accept it because there's been long speculation of like we what actually is Stonehenge. There's, there's been rumors for centuries, if not millennia, of that it had some kind of pagan witchcraft kind of power. We don't really know. 
years and years and years ago, we're talking the medieval world, they would see these like standing stones because you see those all over Ireland and England because those ancient Celtic people put these, we don't, we don't even know how they did it, especially with Stonehenge because Stonehenge is so heavy. But you see these like standing stones that just don't seem like they should be able to stand and they seem like they're really heavy and stuff. And they thought they were like entrances to like the fairy world, right? Because middle, middle ages, Mm -hmm. the, the fairy world was, it's not like Tinkerbell. It's not what we would consider fairies today, but fairies were like tricksters and stuff. They were kind of wicked and evil and stuff. And it's kind of like, so there's always been speculation about Stonehenge being something. I I think we kind of mostly know it's some kind of astrological purpose, right? Isn't that kind of the consensus? In the last hundred or so years, I think it's accepted that it is something to do with the passage of time and the seasons to stand for the solstice rituals, but also any kind of like ceremonial space. There's no doubt that it was used by, by pagan peoples and that it's been viewed as a religious site for several thousand years. Whether it's full of demonic energy. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, I guess that's the I thing. Don't we, we don't, I mean, yeah. but there's always this kind of like, oh, anything old and it's a religion we don't understand. There's something wicked or something witchcrafty about it. You know, that's just, that's just how the world works. At any rate, so this is when we get the, the, the full reveal. And this is um, Dr. Chalice is bound here. He's in front of the television, which is showing Halloween because that was the thing. We saw a, an ad earlier for the... 1978 film that which they call the immortal classic halloween which yeah <laughs> yeah that's pretty freaking bold just four years later and also yeah. when the people working on that movie are working on this one that's kind of i don't know if that's john carpenter's ego maybe that's director tommy lee wallace who's just like here i'll put this in there and hope he doesn't tell me to get rid of it or they're just using it as like an in-joke they're like oh isn't this kind of funny ha 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 that's the most likely thing but still four years four years of moral yeah. classic that's like what 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 are we that's like if we were to say mandy is an immortal classic or something you know yeah well i mean people were walking out of theaters right when halloween came out because it was too spooky i don't know your mom was i don't know if yeah she's a, people... she's a big bitch what can i say <laughs> jesus <laughs> uh, <laughs> i hope bugs come out of her face yeah take that mom <laughs> Anyways, so this is the full full detail of the plan. Uh, this is where he talks about Samhain and the last beautiful, the last glorious Samhain took place a couple thousand years ago. 3,000 to be specific. <laughs> and then he talked about all the child murder or child ritual child sacrifice and animal sacrifice. And so he wants to basically recreate that. And why? I guess he hates children, but also... There is one line about how, like, how the planets are in alignment again. So in theory, the time is right for the first time in 3,000 years that the planets have aligned in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then, we, oh, I guess we haven't said this, but we see that Ellie is in a room and she's also bound. It's like 7.50 or so, I think it's 7.49 I have written down. 7.48. When he gets stuck there. Well, first of all, I just want, uh, want to go back to... Um, Fantastic speech by Gavin O'Hurley. He, he plays it so well. He He's so creepy, but he's so, like, controlled. Like, this is like a mad, this is like an evil genius type. But I also love, because Halloween is on TV in the background, 
So we get the classic Halloween score kind of scoring this scene, which is really, mm-hmm. really effective. It's it's the slow or soft kind of piano music. It's not the Halloween theme, but it's like the scenes of when it's just like Laurie walking around, kind of like looking around, perfectly accentuates this scene too. It's like the perfect marriage of score and script, and you get like this powerfully creepy and performance. Char- yeah, and 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 you get this powerfully creepy scene. Like I said, this this chunk of the movie, which is about 20 minutes, probably less than that, you know, just the, the plan, the reveal of the plan, is probably my favorite stuff in the movie. I think the uh, scene with Little Buddy, arguably the most effective scene in the movie, probably the most famous scene. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've seen snakes and bugs come out of a child's head, you, you're not likely <laughs> to forget it. <laughs> yeah. Even though, as you were saying, it was shot kind of tastefully where you don't, it's not super gory or anything, but there's still, the suggestion is there. The suggestion is still powerful and disturbing and gross. Yeah, so I I love this chunk of the movie, but following this, this is when Chalice frees himself. I think this is arguably the roughest patch of the movie here, though, too. Chalice frees himself. He goes and rescues Ellie. They get to the final processing room, which is, again, the computer room and the Stonehenge room <laughs> and he sneaks around and is just easily able to like fool around with the control panel and stuff and eventually he has the television special play which is what killed Buddy earlier and so everyone's watching it in which it doesn't kill them because they're not wearing the masks but then he dumps down a big box of because at this point he's up in the rafters like Marty McFly in Back to the Future Part Two. He pours down a box of all of these chips, you know, with, with the, yeah. the logo thing, and then because they react to the television, all the robots get zapped. So there's a reaction going on with all the TVs, which is this create like this big ring of electricity. Connell Cochran, who's standing in between sort of the ring of televisions and Stonehenge, looks up at them and seems to acknowledge what's about to happen because he kind of looks up and just slowly, like, claps, does a slow clap of respect, I guess. And then he gets zapped to death. Yeah. Yeah, well, he gets, he gets like... Uh, zapped uh, into oblivion. Yes, yeah. And I just don't understand... Not the most satisfying. No, and why? Why did it zap him? And, and why? Why did the ring of TVs become a ring of light that turned into a laser? And why did Stonehenge shoot out a laser? The Stonehenge bluestone shoot out a laser. I don't like. I, I you know, it's. I think they wrote themselves into a hole, or, or wrote themselves into a wall with just how fucking crazy this story is. Like, what do you do with it? Ah, the Stonehenge zaps yeah. someone to death. You know, like what? What are you gonna do? Um, but at the same time, it's kind of like zap someone to death. But it's also like I I mean it's it's you you can manufacture a way to get rid of the robots right because they're robots and they're yeah. it's a fictional being and and it's not the most satisfying to watch but sure microchips reacting to the television zap the robots like I accept it but mm-hmm. Connell Cochran's a person he could have had bugs and snakes come out of his mouth yeah that's true you know yeah um you could have oh my god this would have been I well I don't think this would have been any different I guess than how those masks work but i was thinking like you just shove the microchip in his mouth and then like duct tape his mouth shut and then i guess his head would probably explode from all these bugs and snakes and stuff but uh 
don't know, maybe we're looking at an NC-17 rated movie if you go (laughs) over the top with that, but I would have liked to see it, but, you know, whatever. The factory is now on fire, which is a beautiful little matte painting kind of thing in the background, but as Chalice and Ellie run away, they get, get to their car, then Ellie, who at this point you realize hasn't spoken a goddamn word in, in like an hour, she attacks him, causing him to crash his car. Ellie at this point, she's been made into a robot, or maybe this is just a robot reconstruction of Ellie. We're not really sure. Yeah, and it we never, never get the answer. Never really makes sense. He knocks her head off, but that doesn't keep her from attacking because there's still the spare arm in the car (laughs) so anyways chalice just gets the hell out of there he runs and he gets to the same gas station that we saw in the opening so the again this guy this gas station has a television on and there's kids coming to trick-or-treat but they stop by because it's just about time for the big giveaways because it's nine o'clock which you know they're first of all these kids not listening to the propaganda advertising team of Silver Shamrock because we see earlier, I skipped this part, but there's a wonderful little montage of children getting ready to go out trick-or-treating all throughout the country. They show like Omaha, Nebraska, Los Angeles, California, which I mean, Arizona. that's where they they all are is Los Angeles, California, but they say Omaha, Nebraska. They say a few other, Dayton, Ohio is one of them. New York, New York. Yeah, they do. New York, New York is the one we see the inside the shop and there's a little, there's a pumpkin mask on like a, must be like an electronic Lazy Susan. It's just like spinning around. And I remember first time (laughs) I saw this movie, I thought that was like a modified mask that a kid had that he was like putting on top of his head or something. So it's just (laughs) like a way to combine Halloween 3 with The Exorcist would just be awesome. Anyway, so the and then we do see a scene later when when it's when it's kind of getting to dusk, you know, trick or treating is over. We see a truck going around with like loudspeakers saying, "Okay, folks, it's almost okay, kids, it's almost time for the big giveaway. Get home, watch the horathon, make Head sure on you home, watch the big put giveaway." Put your masks on. And yeah, so these kids are not listening, not not following the rules. Chalice gets on the phone with, I guess the FCC or, or probably probably the local television. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I would assume so. I don't know. I don't know if he knows the number for, you know, MSNBC or whatever. No, no, you know, it'd be awesome if he got it shut off of all of the regular standard networks and then it was only showing on HBO, so it only killed the rich kids. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty great. So he's on the phone. He's saying, okay, you guys got to pull this off the television. I can't really explain, but it's like life or death. So the kids stop to watch the TV. They pull it off one network, so this, the network just says, like, you know, technical difficulties, and then the kid just changes the channel, and it's showing on another one. Then he's like, okay, you know, it's still on this other channel, and they, they pull it from that one, so he changes it one more channel, and it's on this last channel, and he's like, no, guys, this is still on channel three or whatever. You have to pull it off of channel three. As the music, the annoying Silver Shamrock music gets louder and louder, he's just screaming and screaming and screaming, and he's like, stop it, stop it. Yeah. That's how the movie ends. Presumably, he doesn't get through. Presumably, all the children in America have been killed. And who knows how many parents, you know, depending on how venomous those snakes are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, depending on how, how many rattlesnakes come out. There was a couple snakes. One was a rattlesnake. The first snake you see emerge, I don't think that, whatever snake that is, I don't believe it's venomous. Yeah, Could it, be it wrong. was like a garter snake or something. But but there was like a boa of some kind. And then there was oh, that's the right. rattlesnake. Yeah. Do you think with like with this with this ability to bring forth snakes and, and critters, you could like repopulate some endangered snake species if you get 
if you get like the right snakes you know what i mean <laughs> like or but these things are created or they come out of the person's face so technically maybe we have a new species of snakes and bugs all these things yeah. maybe these are not related to anything and listen we've got an irish dude what does he know about snakes yeah you know they're all gone they're not in yeah ireland. yeah rather ironic you know saint patrick yeah. banished all the snakes from ireland well we've got yeah. come out of children bunch of snakes Jim, what did you think of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch? Despite what a lot of other people say, I really enjoy this movie. An awful lot of people have come around on this movie, I think. There oh, are still okay. people that don't like it, but a lot of people really respect it and think it's it maybe not great, but pretty darn good. I, I think there's a genuine argument that it's the second best film in the Halloween franchise, which it's a, honestly a terrible franchise for the most part. So, <laughs> My only real point is that, you know, this is a... A perfectly fine standalone non-Halloween related film, and I think it would have. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of a shame that I guess both critics and and companies deemed an anthology series not to be a worthy pursuit because I think it could have been something really interesting and special. Yeah, because how many like movie anthology series are there? I don't think there's really any. You have like the VHS movies, which each one of those movies is an anthology, and then it also has a series. But like that's something we see in television a lot in the horror and sci-fi genres. Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits. Mm -hmm. Probably the closest comparison to this. Again, uh, I mentioned The Cloverfield, which, you know, Cloverfield is just a sick practical joke, basically, of a franchise on on people. But yeah. Um, I do think maybe yeah. possibly a good comparison would be American Horror Story because that's an anthology series, but episode to episode it's not an anthology, but season to season it's an anthology. So maybe that would be a, oh. a worthy comparison. Something that I thought was honestly going to detract from this movie more than it did was like the weird sexual tension and sex between Ellie and Dr. Chalice. Mm-hmm. But really, I, the biggest detriment to this movie, but also something that's kind of fun and quirky, is just, like, the plot, I guess, I guess okay. and the villain's plan. Like, it's absolutely oh, ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's so ridiculous that it's laughable, but that's also what makes this movie enjoyable. And I think that's probably what's bringing a lot of people around to it. Yeah, I think uh, people recognize this as just a wildly original, delightfully weird plot and movie, and you have a villain whose motivations don't make a lick of sense but he so delights in how evil he is so there's something fun (laughs) about that there's like an over the top there's a bit of like a you know kind of a bond villain quality which that's what i love about the the classic bond villain we've kind of gotten away from this in the more realistic bond movies but the the villain with the over the top plan like yeah i'm gonna drown the entire world so i can live underwater in my city of atlantis you know in the spy who loves me or something like that (laughs) I also think you mentioned the romance. I agree. On paper, it's creepy. I actually kind of like the bluntness of it, how dumb it is, because I almost think it's funny. Whether or not it's meant to be funny, I don't know. Yeah. I also like the idea, again, Tom Atkins as the protagonist. He's a lot older than you would have as your usual protagonist in a a movie like this. The character, he's just this drunken weirdo who hates his kids (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and to be fair, he does, after he figures, after before he saves Ellie, after he escapes, he does call his ex-wife and tell, tells her to not let the kids watch the um the thing but i but and she's like what are you drunk <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think that out. message got extended to the kids so i think it's safe to say his kids are dead but yeah <laughs> it's weird too because the original halloween 
is as simple as movies get plot wise mm-hmm. it could not be more simple the villain has no motivation he just kills there's nothing to it and then this movie is just like has the weirdest motivations ever for a villain and it's just like all <laughs> yeah. over the place yeah and it's like it's this mystery movie it's this weird romance between an elderly man and his daughter and uh, it's just <laughs> it's just weird yeah it's weird <laughs> So, Jim, which of these two movies, The Mummy or Halloween 3, do you prefer? Halloween 3. I don't think it's that difficult to choose. I mean, it, it's essentially a B-movie, right? It's a B-movie with a mainstream movie title. And in and, and A-movie execution to a certain extent. Yes. With the cinematography and, and some of the makeup effects and stuff. I do like The Mummy. I thought it was a, a great movie, but... One of the reasons we started this podcast was to highlight B-movies and silly, stupid, ridiculous movies with ridiculous plots. And that's exactly what this is. And I love it for it. I prefer Halloween 3. I think it's relatively close, though. And I do um, think—it's funny. The movies aren't really comparable uh, Mm -hmm. because you have one movie that's very kind of standard. And and, and not to say it's—you know, I'm not saying this is a negative, but very normal you know, we've seen movies like this before. And then Halloween 3, which is just kind of crazy. And it's a little, you know, it's insane that this was kind of a mainstream film. It's got Dino De Laurentiis' name on it. It's uh, <laughs> Universal Pictures, I think, released it. I mean, it's weird. If I, if, if certainly if I'm going just off of like, which movie's more unique, certainly I would take Halloween 3. And I would say the uniqueness applies to why I find it more entertaining, but I do like The Mummy a lot. I just I just think overall Halloween 3 is, is more entertaining. It's, uh, it's got more of a kind of an interesting pace. You get that kind of the mystery feel, you know, mm-hmm. mixed in with uh, a little bit of a chase and, you know, hide and seek kind of thing. So I, 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 yeah. I like it. How do you think these two work as a double feature? Well, specifically as like a Halloween time double feature, I think this is great. And I I think it's a good one regardless, but especially around Halloween because Halloween 3 is one of the perfect Halloween movies. It's just such a weird movie, but it's so Halloween. And those masks, they've kind of become iconic in their own way, especially the pumpkin one, I feel like. Yes, yeah. It's just great. But then also like the mummy is classic monster stuff. And even though it's not the universal monster... My main go-to for, like, Halloween time viewing is, like, every Halloween or every October, you know, I watch a bunch of horror movies, and I watch some movies I haven't seen before, some stuff that, a lot of stuff that I have, but, like, a lot of people, like, around Halloween, like, okay, what, I need to watch Nightmare on Elm Street, because I love that, you know, I need to watch Alien, I need to watch, like, all these, like, these are all my favorite horror movies. For whatever reason, just the, it's the Universal Monster movies, for me, have just felt the most, they make me feel the most nostalgic, I guess, they make me feel... Like, I don't feel like it's Halloween until I've watched at least a couple of those Universal Monster movies, those classic. And I'm talking more of the black and white yeah. stuff, but the mummy, the, this mummy, the Hammer films are kind of just an extension of the of the original classic Universal Monster movies. Because you have the, it's the, the different actors, but rather than Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr., you have Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, who are just like horror icons in just as much their own right as those folks are. So it's kind of just mm-hmm. an extension of that. As a Halloween double feature, awesome. As a normal double feature, still pretty darn good because you get this really straightforward film with a fantastical element and no robots, and then you get this really, really <laughs> weird film with a fantastical neo-pagan element and also robots and 60-year-old men sleeping with 20-year-old women and just some weird stuff. But yeah, I, th- I think it's an excellent double feature. Jim, what do you think? 
Well, I totally agree with you for it being like in terms of it being a uh, just a normal double feature. I do really like that straightforward kind of old. I don't really want to call it Hollywood because I guess it isn't Hollywood, but old Hollywood with the mummy. You have Bollywood and like, I don't think there's a proper like Hollywood type name for like the British film industry is there. I guess we, I guess you could call it old Pinewood. I do like that straightforwardness with that mix of, as you so rightly put it, that fantastical element. And then when, when, when you go to Halloween three, it's just fucking, it's insane. Like it's nuts. <laughs> like the plot's ridiculous. The characters are, are kind of ridiculous. Everything's over the top. Yeah, I I think it's great. I think that's exactly what you want out of a double feature. You want one pretty standard or relatively standard to start off with, and then you want to move to this crazy, mind-numbing thing. Strictly speaking... Mind-numbing? This is an engaging film. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Mind-numbing because it's so engaging. (laughs) Okay. Overstimulation. It's like, you know, you have have too much, too many, too many parts of your brain operating. You have a seizure or something like it. It's like that. It's (laughs) seizure inducing film. I'm like, I'm like, oh, old lady, old lady automaton. Oh, real people automatons with orange goop. Uh." (laughs) I start seizing. To continue with what you said about about a strictly Halloween double feature, it's perfect. It's perfect. You do have those old, quote-unquote, Hollywood monsters, that kind of like traditional story structure with these fantastic actors, with these horror icons, as you so rightly put it. And then you have this, again, like this crazy movie that tried to be its own thing and unfortunately failed in the eyes of critics. And audiences. It's still amazing. At the time. Yeah, and audiences. So, Jim, next week we are doing a couple of 80s action movies, including The Delta Force, starring Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin, <laughs> and Young Rebels, which is by director Amir Shervan and... Exciting lineup. As always, should or rate us on whatever podcasting platform you uh, listen to us on, rate, rate and review us. Yeah, also check out our Patreon, where you can hear the episodes earlier than everybody else, as well as have access to commentary tracks that Jim and I have recorded to watch alongside or to listen to alongside some of your favorite horror and action movies. We will have later this season, we will have patrons pick a a double feature that we do. So be sure to follow us on Patreon just for those exclusive privileges alone. Also, I think on Patreon, we also have extended versions of our normal yes, podcast. Yes, yes, we do. That's a good point. Thank you. Because I'm looking at this one, and it's three hours and seven minutes. Yeah, well, the listen, there's <laughs> nonsense that'll be cut. Yeah, this is this is going to be an extended episode. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Jim. And thank you for joining us, dear listeners. Have a lovely Halloween. Watch out for those razor blades. Watch out for those <laughs> Canadian boa constrictors sneaking out of yeah. toilets. All yeah. that stuff. Happy Halloween, everybody. Eat lots of candy and don't get sick from eating it. Oh, eat some candy apples. Those are my favorite. Why do you want people to eat them? Don't you want them all for yourself? I want to live vicariously through all the good people that listen to our podcast. I want to live vicariously through Connell Cochran and just murder several children this Halloween. That's what what I want to do. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Happy Halloween, everybody.